messages. I don't think we're going to do that for Matthew 19. Um, there's just some, some good stuff there. Um, and so it's not as cohesive. Um, it does relate, it does go together. But um, especially when I read the first several verses that deal with marriage, and I think, man, that I, I can't just run through that and attach it to something else. Marriage is too vital, too important to, um, to skimp over it. So one of the... The commentaries that I read was a, a man by the name of R.C. Ryle. You probably have never heard of the man. He lived in the 1800s, and he was um, a bishop in England. And he's known for his writings. He was a prolific writer. But he, commenting about um, Matthew chapter 19, the passages we're going to be covering, some of the passages we're going to be covering this morning, he said this. It is difficult to overrate the importance of these two subjects, marriage and children. The well-being of nations and the happiness of society are closely connected with right views upon them. Nations are nothing but a collection of families. The good order of families depends entirely on keeping up the highest standard of respect for the marriage tie and on the right training of children. But man... Those are so appropriate for our day. Those words are so appropriate for our day and age. And so I say in response to reading that, if the church wants to have a maximal impact on our country and our society, then we need to focus our efforts on the American family, placing the highest value on the holy relationship of marriage and intentionally training our children to know and love and respect God first and others second. And I hope we can do that as a church. To say that the family is the most important institution that God created, and he created it for the well-being of humans. The family is not some social construct that people put together years and years ago. The family is an idea that God made for our good. Like Families are designed in such a way that children would be raised and that they would flourish, that they would be healthy. Adults need one another. And so the, the, the idea that our culture is putting out that families are just social constructs and you can deconstruct them and reconstruct them in any way, in any order, however you want, is a flat lie. And it will be the destruction of our society and our culture. So as we look this morning to Jesus' teaching on marriage, um, it is my hope that we can enrich our marriages and hopefully enrich our own lives through those marriages. So we're going to pick, uh, pick up Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now here this is interesting, because I mentioned that, that Jesus, this is a, a, a series of teachings from Jesus, and it began in 18, goes through verse 20, or sorry, through chapter 20. But Matthew's kind of showing us that he's kind of constructing this story, this um, part of, the, of his biography of Jesus' life, in such a way that he's kind of gathering some teachings but Jesus is still going. He's still on a mission. He's still on a journey to Jerusalem. And he's doing some healings. He's doing other things. But he's kind of emphasizing Jesus' teaching at this point. And he does that for um, literary purposes to help with the reading of, of the story of Jesus. So picking back up in verse 3. And the Pharisees 
came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And we see the Pharisees in Matthew all the time coming up to Jesus or testing him. They're trying to get him caught in, in, in one of their little feuds. And <laughs> we're going to touch a little bit on those, those feuds in just a minute. But I, I want to, to bring together kind of this topic of marriage with what we've talked about last week, forgiveness. Right? Do you find it interesting that right after Matthew taught recorded and recorded for us Jesus's teachings on forgiveness he then moves immediately to a teaching on marriage anybody find that ironic at all he goes directly from forgiveness to marriage and then he goes to children it's like there's a theme here that we need to pick up on but there's a greater theme even kind of if we if we take a higher level a higher elevation view and that is at the beginning of this whole sermon, if you want to call that, that began in, in chapter 18, the disciples, remember the disciples were arguing who was going to be the greatest. And so Jesus began talking about the lowly people. He began, and he talked about forgiveness. And now he's talking about marriage because see, in Jesus's day, lowly people were women. They had virtually hardly any rights. And so it's interesting that Jesus is actually still on the theme of lowliness, of humility, how we're supposed to relate to one another um, with a humble attitude. So our culture, right, it, and, and this is true in Jesus' culture too, in fact this is true in every culture, that, that people, men value power, they value status, but Jesus' followers are to value love, value the lowly, the powerless. And so he's including women. He's including the people who need to be forgiven. And he's including the relationship between men and women because it's so easy for a man who is after power, after status, to kind of forget the, his helpmate, to forget the one whom he is um, attached to. So... With that context of the lowly, with that context of coming right after forgiveness, we let us um, look into the feuds that are going on in Jesus's day in which the Pharisees are using as a hook to try to get Jesus to kind of agree with one of them and therefore ostracize the other ones and cause all this kind of chaos. In Jesus's day, there were different teachings that the rabbis, the teachers of his day, um, believed about Moses and his regulations on divorce. And so one of them was that the only reason you could divorce your spouse was because of adultery, right? Unfaithfulness. Others taught that, you know, you could divorce your wife um, if she did anything that displeased you from, um, you know, not sewing your shirt right to burning your toast for breakfast. Still others taught that you actually don't need a cause to divorce your wife. Um, you can just divorce her at any time. If, if, if you found um, a lady down the road who you thought was more attractive and would be a better wife, you're free to divorce your current wife and go after the other wife. And so they're trying to bring Jesus into this. Okay, Jesus, these are the camps. Where do you stand? And this is what Jesus says. Picking back up in verse 4. 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus, he just circumvents all their arguments. Whatever it is you think, you are wrong, because there is teaching in the Bible about marriage that predates Moses. So he goes back to Genesis, back to the beginning. Where And he doesn't say Moses wrote. He says these are the divine words, right? The divine words of God is that God created man, he created woman, and he instituted marriage. And what happens in marriage is that two become one flesh. So what can we learn from that? Well, we can learn that marriage is not merely a human agreement. When you married somebody, you didn't just say, yeah, I think this will work out or it'll work out for a while anyway. So this looks like it's going to benefit me in some way. So therefore, I'm going to enter into this agreement knowing that down the road, I can just end it whenever I want. No, marriage is not just a human agreement, but a relationship in which God changes your status as a human being. When you enter into a marriage Something grand happens in God's eyes where you change from becoming an individual to now being bonded with this other person in a way where no that is different from any other human relationship. No other human relationship can you go from being one thing to another thing in God's eyes and be considered bonded as one flesh with that individual. Something happens uniquely in marriage. And indeed, Paul says that marriage is mysterious, that the one flesh relationship is mysterious. And he actually says it points to Christ. He says it's it's symbolic of Christ's relationship with the church. We don't have time to go into that this morning, but I just wanted to make that connection for you. You can look it up in, in Ephesians. So in this relationship, in this marriage bond, you now have rights but you also have responsibility. We live in a culture that loves to emphasize the rights that we have, and it wants to forget and abdicate all of the responsibilities that come with those rights. But in your marital relationship, you do have rights, but you also have responsibilities. You are connected to another in a unique, spiritual, mysterious way in a way that you are not connected to any other human on the face of this planet. Your relationship with your spouse is different than your relationship with your children. It's different than the relationship with your parents. It's different than the relationship with your siblings or your neighbors or your best friend. Your relationship with your spouse, the Bible calls a one flesh relationship. You are not your own anymore. You now belong to your spouse. So what does that look like? Well, for one, it is the bonding of mixing of blood, right? The sexual relationship between a man and a woman is a bonding feature. 
And so not only do we know that there is blood that's exchanged, but we now know that there are chemicals that are produced in your body when you engage in those activities that emotionally bind you to that individual. So you now have an emotional connection with that person that you should have with no one else. And as you engage in those relations over and over and over, that bond grows stronger and stronger and stronger, and it kind of takes a different form. It's now no longer just a passion and desire of the flesh. It's a desire to know that person even more. There's a reason why the Bible, if you go back to Genesis again, where Adam, it says that Adam knew his wife. For us, that know is, I mean, I know a lot of people, don't you? But no, it's a special, unique kind of know where you have an intimate knowledge of that person that is unique to the two of you. All right? So sexuality is not just an exchanging of liquids. It's not an exchanging of skin molecules. It's not an exchanging of blood. It is actually a bond of two people in which you grow deeper with one another. And God designed it that way. So not only is there a one flesh relationship because of the, the sexual nature of marriage, but also it's a cutting off of other relationships and a forming of a new one. So the Bible says, and as Jesus just quoted, therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Right? So many problems come into a marital relationship when there's not a proper cleaving, um, I think that's right. Yeah, there's not a proper separation from the child-parent relationship that you had. I mean, before you're married, the most important relationship that you have is with your parents. That changes when you get married. That changes when you say, I do. When you have vows that you're committing your life, your love, your devotion, all of you to another person, that changes your relationship with your parents. As it should. You are making a new family. A, before you walk down that aisle, there was not a family. When you walk back up that aisle, a new family has been created. That's miraculous. There is a mystery that takes shape there. So you leave your father and mother. You are now one flesh with this person. It includes the sexual relationship. It includes the um, forming of a, of a new relationship, a new family, a new unit is created. So we see, and that, that's going to be really important for Jesus's reasons in just a minute, but we see that Jesus, he just kind of circumvents or avoids all the Pharisees' arguments altogether. He doesn't, he doesn't get into them. He probably knows them. He's probably heard of them a hundred times, and he just goes around all of them and gets back to the root, right? What is the root? The root is God's original intention for the marital institution for marriage, all right? It is a permanent bond between a man and a woman that joins them into a new union as consecrated by physical intercourse. I know of uh, pastors who, um, if they're doing marital counseling of a new newlywed, let's say, you know, they've been married three months, and as all of you know, sometimes early relationship marriage can be can be problematic, and if they come to his to his office, I've heard this guy say, if I find out they've not engaged in intercourse, I say, go do that first, because your marriage is, your marriage is not consecrated before God. There is something that happens through sexual intimacy, and that is why Jesus responds the way he does to the Pharisees' next question. They said to him, all right, if 
if God joins two people together in a one flesh relationship, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Like, if this is God's way, if this is God's original purpose for a man and a woman and the, the institution of marriage, then why in God's law does Moses say to give your wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So Jesus responds to them, it's because of your hardness of heart. It's because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Again, Jesus goes back to the original intent. God's original purpose for marriage was a covenant between a man and a woman for the rest of their lives. As long as you both shall live, you are connected to this individual. So there's an interesting concept that the Pharisees are going off of, okay? The Pharisees are taking this commandment that Moses allowed for divorce to take place, and they're saying, at what point can we use that for our gain? Isn't that how people work, right? So we ask, well, how far can I go before I've broken God's law, right? Like, I want to know the exact line so I can put my toe up against it, but not touch it, so I can, I, I can get what I want. Yeah, that sounds like people. You see, they were exploiting a concession of the law of Moses. Because God says, from the beginning, it wasn't so. That's not God's intention, but because of your hardness of heart. Meaning, the hardness of heart can be taken two ways. It can be taken that only those who are hard-hearted seek divorce. I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. Or, and I think this is right, because of humanity's hard-hearted rebellion against God, because of man's sinfulness, because of man's selfishness and rebellious nature to not love when we're commanded to love, because of that, all right, that affects marriage in a unique way. When you've connected your life with another person in a unique way, sin affects that relationship in ways it affects no other relationship. And God knows that because God's the one who designed it. And so, because of that, because of the presence and effect of sin on people's lives, and because marriage is the most intimate of human relationships, marriage can be damaged and defiled in a way that is sometimes irreparable. And so God in his grace and his mercy and in his wisdom, told Moses that someone could give a certificate of divorce to end the marriage, even though it's not actually ended. Because they are one flesh still in God's eyes. So he did he didn't know that Moses did not command divorce. You don't have, no one's commanded a divorce, but sometimes there's no other way. Because we live in a broken, sinful corrupted world. So, whenever we start asking, how much can I get away with? Where is the line, Jesus? I want to know exactly where the line is. It shows our hearts are in the completely the wrong spot. Because these Pharisees were exploiting a concession that was in the law because of our hardness of hearts, and they wanted to milk it for all it was worth. And so, it makes me wonder, what kind of hardness of heart do I have 
when I'm asking those kinds of questions. When I'm asking, where is the line exactly? That shows a hardness of heart. The real question that Christians should ask themselves is how can I honor God? <laughs> All right? Does, does this make God look good or does it just get me what I want? All right? Is this action, is this thought, is this behavior making me more like Jesus or is it turning me more into a monster? Because those are the only two options, right? We go back to live no lives. You're either becoming more like Jesus or you're becoming more like the devil. Those are the only two options. So we, like Jesus, need to get back to the purpose. What is God's ideal for marriage? What is his goal? What is his perfect, his purpose for marriage? And then, for those of us who are married, we should ask ourselves, does your ideal marriage imitate God's purpose for marriage? That should be your goal. Not, what does it take to get out of this marriage? That's the opposite direction we should be heading. We should be heading in the direction of how can I live in my marriage in such a way that fulfills God's intentions and purpose for marriage in my life between me and my spouse. Jesus has a habit of taking an issue, okay? In this case, it's divorce, to a deeper heart level, doesn't he? You remember when, whenever we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, he took, um, he took adultery, right? And he said... Um, it's not just about, you know, committing the actual act of adultery, right? If you look at a woman with lustful eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart, right? Talking about murder, it's not the act of murder, right? It's if you ever have hated your brother in your heart, you've already murdered in your heart. Jesus has a way of saying you're focusing too much on the action and you're not focusing enough on the heart. And so he does the same thing here with marriage. If you're asking the question, at what point is it okay Then you might be going down the wrong lane? You might be going in the wrong direction. All right? The goal, the goal of marriage, okay, talking about the heart, is not about when we can divorce. It's actually trying to have marital harmony. So Jesus says this in verse 9. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. This is a powerful teaching, a powerful warning, a powerful truth on marriage. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. That's the only reason Jesus gives for divorce, sexual immorality. And even then, if sexual immorality does happen, if your spouse is unfaithful, it doesn't mean you have to divorce them. Right? He just taught on forgiveness and how much we've been forgiven. And so he calls us to radical forgiveness because of the radical forgiveness we've been given. But if it is irreparable, if it is devastating and so destructive what's happened, then he gives concession again for divorce. But the divorce doesn't end the one flesh relationship. This is a legal issue. All right. This is not a spiritual issue. Okay, so he's, he uses this word um, sexual immorality. It's Greek for pornea, and it includes any kind of sexual immorality. All right, specifically, it's talking about um, physical physical intimacy with, with intercourse, but it can refer to um, a number of kind of affairs. 
Now, why is sexual immorality so devastating to a marital relationship? Because it, that is the way you consecrate and create a one flesh relationship with a person. So you are literally taking an act that you were to have with one person that connects you and bonds you in a unique way for that person for the rest of your life, and you're just throwing it away. You're just throwing it in slime and in filth. And when that happens, you are taking the relationship and pulling it through the mud and muck and slime and worse. um, Excuse me. Sexual immorality, yes, defiles the marital relationship because it corrupts the one flesh relationship that you've created with another being. All right, there's a union that takes place. The very act of consummating your one flesh relationship, your vows meet physical reality is what happens in, in sexuality with another person. It's an expression, it's a fulfillment of your vows to that person. And so it is the worst possible thing you can do to throw that away. And talking about sexual immorality, Paul brings it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. That's the same word that, that, that Jesus was using. And he says this, every other sin is this, a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immorality right, is a sin against your own body. So when you lie, you're doing something outside of you. When when you sin sexually, you are sinning against your own body, against your own soul. I don't do this very often, but I'm actually going to quote from the translation, the message. The reason why I don't quote from that very often is because um, the person who wrote that is basically their commentary on the Bible. They're not using the actual words from the Greek or Hebrew and taking them and translating them and putting them in a new format. He's actually taking them and commenting on what he thinks they are. But I think he's right here, so I'm going to go ahead and quote from it. (laughs) He says, There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as it is a physical act. As it is written, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment, that avoids intimacy, that leaves us more lonely than before, the kind of sex that can never become one. So when you are engaging in that kind of relationship with someone you're not committed to, you're committing a lie. You're committing a lie with your body. You're committing a lie spiritually because you are not in a relationship that is designed and created for that kind of activity. It goes on, there is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. God gave us, I say this to people all the time, sex is not something human beings came up with. Sex is something that God created for us as a gift to bond us together with our spouses. It's amazing. It's one of the best gifts he could have given us. He didn't have to make procreation that good. He could have made it to where all you have to do is just touch fingers. But he didn't. 
He made a bond. He made an activity that's enjoyable, that is glorious, and that is mysterious to bond two people together. He says, in sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. And these bodies that were made for God-given and God-molded love for becoming one with another. So the reason why sexual, sexual morality is so devastating, the reason why it's a sin against your own body is because God gave you that gift to give to another person to bond you together in a loving relationship. And you take that and you throw it away and it is a defilement to who God made you to be, to how God made you. So Jesus says that the only reason that you can divorce your spouse is because of sexual morality. So how do you think the disciples would have responded? Well, they responded with, if that's the case, then it's better to just not get married at all. <laughs> it's like, okay, all, all right. I'm not sure how they meant that. But take for, just consider this. We live in a culture that you meet somebody, you fall in love, you decide to get married, you get married, and then life goes on. They lived in a time where their mom and their dad got together with someone else's mom and dad and decided who they're going to marry. And oftentimes, the first time you're ever alone with that individual is on your wedding night. Not just physically. I mean, the only time you've had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with that person is the first time you're alone after you said, I do. Okay? So, kind of hard to judge that. You have no idea who this person is. You're trusting your parents and their parents to give an accurate representation of who this person is. All right? But in any case, here's how Jesus responds to them. He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. All right? Meaning, y'all may be joking, but you're more right than you realize. Only those to whom it has been given can receive this. And then he explains it in verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let one who is able to receive this, receive it. Meaning, there are individuals who have been called to not marry for the purposes of the kingdom. That's powerful. And we have an example in Paul the Apostle. He says that he says that he has been given a gift, right? To not marry so that he can focus all of his attention on the gospel, on the kingdom work that God has given him. But he recognizes not everybody has this gift. Okay? He says in 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so remember, if you remember the book of Corinthians, it's like a back and forth between Paul and the Corinthian church. One of the things they, they had a question about, right, was marriage and sexuality. So their question is something along the lines of, um, is it okay to be married? Is it okay to have sexual relationships with another one? And he responds like this. He's like, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. To the unmarried widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, 
they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You see, God recognizes that he has given us good instincts and good desires. And that's not just about wanting the different things in life. That applies to sexuality. And so Paul says it is good to not marry if you can control yourself. But if you can't control yourself, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So what are we to, what are we to take from this? First, God created marriage and it's good and sexual relationships are to be explored are to be celebrated in the context of marriage because that is a way that God bonds two people together. All right? There is, in a sense, okay, this is going to sound weird, but in a sense, God has given us divorce, and in some cases, divorce is an act of mercy because the marital relationship has been so defiled, so corrupted, that it cannot be healed and that is only devastating for the person who remains in it, okay? I believe that there are two other reasons that you can be divorced biblically, okay? One of them is found in Corinthians as well. And Paul says to a married person that if a believer, a Christian believer is married to a non-believer, okay, then if that non-believer wishes to stay married, then the believer should stay married with them. But if the non-believer chooses to leave, then the married person should let them leave and be free from that marital relationship, okay? So I take from that, if I boil that down, okay? If abandonment is taking place, I believe that marital divorce is inappropriate, okay? Because when Paul says you can be free from that, he's talking about legally you are free to marry another one. Now, the other one is requires a little bit more critical thinking, so I'll go through it really quickly. I believe that God made humans in his own image, right? We can all agree on that, I think, here. That means that we're not just physical beings, right? We're emotional beings as well. Most people believe that if physical abuse is taking place, there is a legitimate reason to divorce, okay? I believe that to be true, too. But my question is, why would it be true for physical abuse and not for emotional abuse? Okay? Now, I'm not saying you... If, if I were to counsel someone in that situation, here's how I'd handle it, okay? I would say separate first and try to heal the relationship. And if that can't happen, then you can pursue divorce. Because it's not all or nothing. It's not like you're either married or you're not married. Like, relationships are complicated. Relationships are difficult um, and complex. And so there are times that... A married couple, depending on what's going on in their relationship, need to separate, right? need to back off, right? need to have some space between them so they can figure out themselves, and then hopefully they can reconcile that relationship. And so I'll end with that. Right? Jesus says in the chapter, the paragraph right before this, he calls us to a radical forgiveness. Okay? But again, radical forgiveness does not mean reconciliation. It takes two to reconcile. It only takes one to forgive. All right? The marriage relationship is the most complex. It is the most beautiful, most glorious, 
only life-giving. I mean, think about that. The marital relationship is to be the only relationship where life is the result. That's amazing. And yet, because the marriage is so mysterious, because the marital relationship is so unique, and that one flesh relationship is mysterious and unique, sin can show up in the marriage in ways it cannot show up in any other relationship. And that brings a lot of complexities. Okay? So when I preach a message like this, it can be difficult because I know many here have been divorced, have been remarried. This is not a condemnation to any of that. Right? I was not involved in any of that, and I honestly don't know a lot of the things that went on there. But I do know this, okay? And here we go. I'm going I'm to reread something that Jesus said to you. It says to us. If I can find it. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. If such is the case, with a man and a wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus says to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Jesus Christ is, tells us that the marriage relationship, the one flesh relationship, okay, whenever you enter into that relationship, you are one flesh with that person. So the question comes up, right? There's, like, for instance, there'll be new believers that are on their second or third spouse. They'll say, do I need to divorce this one and try to reconcile with the other one? No, because you've already entered a new flesh relationship, a new one flesh relationship. So here's what, here's what I think Jesus would have us do, right? Live in that relationship according to the purposes God has for the one flesh relationship, okay? <laughs> you don't need to worry about the ones you've already done before. You remember that radical forgiveness you've experienced? That covers your past relationship. That covers your past mistakes. It covers your past sins. It covers your past confusions. God's calling you to live in the one flesh relationship that you have with another now. So your response to this may be repentance. It may be that God is calling you to give more emphasis and more intentionality in your one flesh relationship you have with somebody. God may be calling you to repent because you are, whether or not you're actually engaging in a one flesh relationship with someone who's not your spouse, you are headed down that direction. That is dangerous. That is dangerous for your current relationship and it's dangerous for your relationship with God. For us as Christians, as believers, we need to be asking ourselves, how do I live in this relationship with my spouse in a way that brings the most honor to God? the most glory to God. And for that, I say, God gets glory when what? God gets glory when for our good. Like, our good brings glory to God, right? So don't find a way to just endure your relationship. Find a way to live it out for the harmony, for the goodness that God intended the one flesh relationship to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your mercy and grace. I thank you for your word that it can correct um, the cultural lies that we are exposed to day in and day out. But I pray that we would, each one of us that are married, would put more effort into our marriage, or that we would ask the right questions of how do we live for your glory in this relationship? How do we experience this relationship as you designed it? 
Father, I pray that you would be with those who are not yet married. Lord, all the young ones in this in this room, Father, I pray that you would bring them to maturity, that they can enter into a one flesh relationship in the, the context of holy matrimony with maturity one day. I pray that you'd bring spouses to our children that would fear you and honor you and that would love and understand the goodness of marriage. Father, I pray that you would do all of these things for the goodness of your people and for your glory. Amen. All right, I'll invite you to stand and sing as we...